Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 106, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or show forth all his praise? Let us do so now by standing and singing together hymn number 44. Father, we know as we just sung together and as we find in Exodus and throughout the Bible that you love to be glorified among the nations and that the unfolding of history is nothing other than the unfolding of the revelation of your own glory in history. Uh, Father, in truth, we as Christians find that we cannot read history, nor can we experience history in our own time without noticing this as the hallmark of history. Of course, we know the unbeliever, uh, though he knows God, does not acknowledge him and he buries the knowledge of God in unbelief and in sin and unrighteousness. But uh, never mind him. He is not our concern. He is not uh, the arbiter of truth. Uh, you are the arbiter of truth. And we are able plainly to see, O oh God, that you are glorified in the midst of the nations. Uh, and as we find as Christian people uh, that, that the course of, of the nation and of the nations is something that 
uh, in large measure preoccupies us. And uh, we, we ask you, Lord, that you would you would help us to see above all that that is your paramount concern in history. Uh, not that the seed of the serpent is triumphing, though it would often seem that way, but that in reality he is perishing. And if ever you prop him up and set him up, it is only so that you might overthrow him and uh, display your greater glory. You did that with Pharaoh and you do it so often. Uh, Lord, it is amazing to see, uh, of course, the greatest display of this at the cross when Satan thought he had finally conspired in a victorious way only uh, to work his ultimate defeat. And so, again, you get the greater glory. Uh, Father, it takes faith to see this. And we ask you to give us such faith. We ask you to fight, to give us reason to be cheerful and encouraged and joyful uh, in the midst of uh, perplexing days. We ask you to cause us as Christian people to press on in our faith and to hold fast our profession. We ask you, oh God, as practical as this, for the ability to keep the churches open, uh, free of any conflict with the state. That continues to be our prayer. Uh, for the free exercise of religion in this land, the great Protestant principle upon which this nation was founded. We ask you as Christian people, O oh Lord, uh, not, not to bring politics into the church, just to, just to have the free exercise of religion. That's it. That's all we ask you uh, when it comes to, to... That's as much as we'll say, I mean, about politics in the church. But Lord, would you give us that? Would you, would you free us from any interference from the state and the world? Let us go on freely exercising our faith. Uh, even in the midst of a pandemic, oh God, would you give us the freedom to go about it in the way that we saw fit uh, as, as elders and governors of the church and as a church together? Uh, Lord, you are the, the Lord of the church, just as you're the Lord of history. We need you to, to look after us. We need you to protect and to preserve us. Again, just as our pilgrim fathers prayed as they, they crossed over the Atlantic and came into this land and, and set, as they said, uh, metaphorically to set up a city on a hill. Not as though America would ever be heaven or Israel or anything like that. But just to say, we want to worship God here in this land. And we wish to do so freely. Uh, Father, again, that is our prayer. That is our earnest desire. We ask that you would grant that to us in the land of America. And that you would go on granting that to us. And whatever hardships we may face beyond that, well then let us face them. But, Father, if you should drive us to the fields or drive us underground or whatever in the coming days, Lord, again, let us just uh, the coming days in the coming years, I should say, uh, Lord, let us just go on in our desire to worship you. Father, we equally pray that you would hold this church together. It, it, it would seem uh, that that today, thank God, not here, but so many churches are so fragile under the current pressures of the church. Uh, and buckling under those pressures and Satan always, always, always seeking to divide brother against brother. And the issues with which we are contending in the, the 21st century in 2020 are incredibly divisive, even amongst Christians. Oh, Holy Spirit, you who are the author of true unity and true blessedness in the church, would you work unity here and would you preserve unity? Not just in our desire to worship you, but in our ability to do so as one body. We even would pray, O oh God, going forward, that we would see days of greater blessing poured out in the church. That we would find that the churches are full and even overflowing. And that we would rejoice at the prospect of that. That the light of the gospel would be shining forth even more brightly, even as it would seem darkness is advancing. But Father, we pray for our nation. We pray as Christians who are also citizens of this country that you would be merciful. 
Might we see uh, an act of God in our own day? Might we see not only the church is greatly strengthened, but the nation strengthened? For you are uh, the Lord. You are the Lord, not only of the church, but of the land. And we ask you, O God, that we might find righteousness in the land, not unrighteousness. We do not wish as Christians to live in a wicked nation. We don't wish to live in days of alarming darkness only so that our light might shine. We would rather be salt, which preserves the goodness of man, at least to a degree, so long as we live here. But Father, whatever you should do, all that we ask you is that you would be glorified and that your will would be done and that we as your people would rejoice in that will. Give us that kind of faith and that kind of courage and that kind of perseverance as Christian people. And as we go on in our worship, even this evening, we pray that you would bless and meet with us and continue a work of grace in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, we will divide the scripture reading uh, since it is a little bit more of a lengthy one. Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. Verse 8, excuse me, to the end of the chapter, and then we'll look at uh, a little over the first half of chapter 8 in the second reading. Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, uh, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, work a miracle, uh, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh And thus they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned uh, into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of of, uh, the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand and it will be turned into blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die and the Nile will become foul. And the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking the water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the street, their streams and over their pools and over all their reservoirs of water that they may make that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let us now stand together and sing the doxology.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Now we are uh, at the end of the Canons of Dort. One final confession together, Article 15, and then we will begin uh, to confess together the Apostles and Nicene Creed in in, uh, alternating fashion. So, the Canons of Dort, fifth main point of doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Article 15, uh, read along with me. Contrasting reactions to the teaching of perseverance. This teaching about the perseverance of true believers and saints and about their assurance of it, a teaching which God has very richly revealed in the word for the glory of his name and for the comfort of the godly, impresses on the hearts of believers, is something which the flesh does not understand Satan hates, the world ridicules, the ignorant and the hypocrites abuse, and the spirits of error attack. The bride of Christ, on the other hand, has always loved this teaching very tenderly and defended it steadfastly as a priceless treasure. And God, against whom no plan can avail and no strength can prevail, will ensure that the truth will will continue to do this. To this, God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be God the glory forever. Amen. What strikes me about that statement, actually, has less to do with perseverance, the doctrine, and it uh, really has to do with all truth. All truth as we find revealed in Scripture, the fact that the Bride of Christ loves very tenderly and defends steadfastly as a priceless treasure all that God teaches and reveals to the church. Everything that we stand for and support, as the pillar and buttress of the truth as Scripture says, while at the same time finding in every point of doctrine, especially saving doctrine, uh, but even in matters concerning the law, uh, that the world not only doesn't understand, as it says here, but it hates, it ridicules, it abuses, and it attacks. The truth is always under attack. This is something that the Reformers had to learn in the writing of these creeds and confessions. It's something that we're having to learn afresh in our own day. The truth is always under under attack. Uh, but but recognize in the midst of that how how happily and positively it, it states the church's disposition to the truth the fact that it is to us a priceless treasure, and especially our confidence that there is no strength nor plan which can uh, undo the truth or undo the church's commitment to the truth. And so it ends to this, God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. Amen. And with that, we conclude the Canons of Dort. Let us stand together and sing hymn 472.
mercy, O deliver us, good Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Let us now conclude our reading, which we began earlier on. Exodus now, chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. You'll notice again the divisions which I uh, follow do not always follow the chapter headings. It's just like that sometimes. Once again, the chapter headings and the verses are not inspired. They are just a help to us, something which was added later. So beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians, magicians, excuse me, did the same uh, with their secret arts, making frogs uh, come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, the honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs may the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they may be left only in the Nile? Then he said tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts and the fields. So they piled them in heaps. And the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We ask you now that by the preaching you might once more shed light upon it and grant us a greater understanding. And we especially pray that a text like this, as indeed every text of Scripture, would preach to us. It wouldn't just be more information, but it would be something which calls the church to action and above all calls us to faith. And, and so the element of exhortation, let it, let it be plainly uh, present. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I indicated at the end of the last sermon... 
Borrowing a phrase from Matthew Henry, the dispute in chapter 7, verse 7, between God and Moses ends. You remember, they go back and forth uh, about the call, and Moses just continues to object until the Lord finally overcomes his stubborn heart on this point. And in chapter 7, verse 8, the dispute between Pharaoh and Moses begins, which will take us uh, for some time, although we'll take it in large chunks. What we've seen already is that this dispute is not a purely national one between the nation of Israel and the nation of Egypt, as though all the Exodus event involved was a conflict between two nations. It was rather a religious conflict as much as anything else, a spiritual battle between God and the spiritual forces of the sinful world, which included, as we saw, the outward aspect We are not so spiritual as to think the outward condition does not matter. Exodus teaches us a different lesson. That the outward state of the church does matter. It's something that we all know. But it's good to be reminded of that. But that lesson as it's played out on the external plane of history and the conflict between uh, nations and peoples reveals a deeper conflict at play. A spiritual and a religious one. The conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. As prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. One which, in fact, is always at work in history. And as history unfolds, there is, you might say, a dispute between these two seeds at all times and at all places. And so there isn't a single age that is exempt from this. Every period in history, has witnessed this same exact struggle. Here was God at odds with the nations, just as he will later be in the prophets, just as he is today. Pagan nations and pagan rulers who would not submit to him. Who is God that I should submit to him? That's the proud boast of the wicked ruler. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Here's the question. Who will win this battle? In many ways, that is the great question of history, is it not? From the Christian perspective. It's the question which the Bible answers, but it's the question which providence still today, as history unfolds, is answering in the same way. Man in his supposed greatness is like Pharaoh here, refusing to submit to God and pretending that he's greater than God. As I've said before, and I think at times we have this sense ourselves, sometimes it would seem that the seed of the serpent is winning in our own day. Surely that is how things seemed here with Moses and the people of God. But God was about to effect a marvelous victory, causing the seed of the serpent to fail in spectacular fashion. So I think what God says to Moses just before this is something that we have to bear in mind constantly. Genesis or Exodus chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. If I were to summarize what he says there, I would say, wait and see what I will do. And when I act, you will know it. There are times, of course, when it seems that God is not acting. This was one such time in the life of the people of God. But that is because he is waiting. He is waiting to act. He is about to act. And at such times, we we must wait with him and have enough faith to wait and see what he will do. Rest assured, beloved, when he acts, we will know it. 
And we will share in his triumph and victory. Our God, as I said last time, is a God who loves a good battle. If only to show forth the glory of his might. And so should we. We shouldn't be so easily discouraged and hopeless in the face of a little adversity. And so here the conflict begins. God is at work through his servants, Moses and Aaron. He is seeking to overthrow the godless reign of the wicked man, Pharaoh. Notice, he doesn't do so all at once. He does so in stages. There is a progressive unfolding of God's work here. His judgments, we discover, are tempered with mercy. He lets the bad man harden his heart once and twice and many more times before God hardens his heart completely and gives him over to a heart of unbelief and strikes him down with terrible judgment. Now, that is one of the many lessons of Pharaoh that we see uh, unfolding here in the Exodus event and that we find throughout history. His judgments don't come all at once. But you see, it begins like this. Work a miracle before Pharaoh. That's what Pharaoh demands, and that's what God calls them to do. And so, there is the the essential aspect of the contest made plain at the outset. Pharaoh set himself up as a great ruler, greater even than God himself. And the only question to be settled was whether he could stand in defiance to God once God had made his will known. Was Pharaoh really greater than God? It was a battle, if you will, of who was greater, who possessed the superior, uh, the, the superior power, Pharaoh or God. It's almost ridiculous to even ask the question as we're sitting here in church. Who is greater, God or Pharaoh? But if we are honest with ourselves, we will admit that all our worry and our fears about this world reveal that this basic question is still unresolved in our hearts. That at times we are afraid that in fact the rulers of this world are in fact greater and more powerful than God himself. And that they are able to harm the people of God without the will of God. We still aren't sure that God is really greater than the rulers of this world. Again, that's the question that the church in every age has to resolve for itself. Well, you remember, again, what Pharaoh said about God. Who is God that I should submit to him? There, uh, again, the, the conflict is unfolding along those lines. And he was about to find out who is God. As every wicked ruler does. But the curious thing here was that the magicians themselves were able to... Re- Reproduce the same miracle, the throwing down of the staff and turning into a serpent, which is strange, we have to admit. It would seem that they too possess spiritual powers beyond that of ordinary nature. Another indication to us that this conflict had more to do with the spiritual fear than the national. Here, the contest between the two seeds is apparent. Between, again, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And at times, we discover... The demonic forces are able to replicate certain mighty acts as they pretend to possess an equal power to God. But when Aaron's serpent swallowed up theirs, who could fail to appreciate the real significance that uh, that there really was no equivalence in power and that while both were powerful in the conflict, one was more powerful by far. Obviously, the seed of the woman represented by Moses and Aaron. 
And so I just asked the question, who could fail to appreciate it from that simple fact, the, the one serpent swallowing up the others? Uh, the, the sad fact is Pharaoh. Again and again, we're going to see him coming into the picture and the state of his heart and the state of his repentance. We have another striking instance of his hard, stony heart in the presence of a clear indication of God's greater power, greater than the demonic forces at work in his kingdom. He would not submit nor acknowledge that God was the Lord. But lest we find in this any reason to be discouraged as though the increase in wickedness of the rulers of this age were something that ought to discourage us. Moses reminds us at the end of this uh, initial incident that this was exactly what the Lord had said would happen. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. There is another common refrain that we will find throughout the telling of the story. So there was nothing here that happened that was outside or apart from the will of God. Pharaoh would witness great signs and he would not believe them just as the Lord had said. And for no other reason. Because nothing occurs outside of the will of God. So following this refusal, we have the beginning of the plagues. As judicial signs against Pharaoh, hard-hearted Pharaoh. But also as an opportunity for him to repent. That is, again, why the judgment and the overthrow of Pharaoh does not come all at once. Judgment is tempered with mercy. But rather than repenting, what we see about Pharaoh is that his hard heart only grows harder with every new incident. There are several comments about the plagues which are necessary before we begin. Uh, I'm sure you all know there are ten plagues. And I want to make a comment about the structure of the plagues, since this will explain uh, the course of the sermons on the plagues. There is an obvious division in threes. Three, 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 one. So three threes followed by a climactic plague, which stands on its own, the tenth plague. Certain factors make this division natural and necessary. The first three plagues, which we consider this evening, were common to all Egypt and Israel alike. But the next, in the next three, a distinction was made between Israel and Goshen and Egypt. The plagues fell only upon the Egyptians. Plagues four through six. Following that, in the final uh, series of three, plagues seven through nine, a new mark of intensity and severity emerges, which begin to anticipate the final climactic sign. And with the tenth plague, which stands on its own, we notice another difference. The Lord acts without the help of Moses and Aaron. He simply passes through the land in a terrible act of judgment. Another thing to notice in, in general about the plagues is the way they demonstrate in an unmistakable way that God is the Lord. He is Jehovah. Remember, that is what is at stake here in the Exodus event. That is what God is revealing to the church, the essential character of his name and what his name reveals about his essential character. Who is the Lord? God is the Lord. And all that that means will become clear to us. In a way, what we notice in this conflict is that God uh, wasn't denying that there were other gods in a lowercase g. Other spiritual forces that were at work conspiring against him and even seeking to overthrow his rule. His only interest was in displaying that he was the Lord and they were not the other demonic spiritual forces. And so when Pharaoh was told 
Thus says the Lord, let my people go. The folly of his refusal will become evident in his own God's inability to deliver him from his wrath. It is a contest between Pharaoh and the Lord. Next, and I've already indicated this, but let me just say a few words here about the heart of Pharaoh. In many ways, all of this becomes a case study in the heart of man. At times we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Other times we read it was hard. And then at times we read he hardened his own heart. In fact, all three occur in the passage we've read tonight. As Alec Moter says, it is possible to tell two stories about Pharaoh's heart. There's three statements, but really they're telling two truths. One is obviously that God had no need to harden the heart of Pharaoh. He was quite capable of doing so himself. But lest we think the evil heart of man lies outside of God's control, since that is the fundamental issue at stake in the name Jehovah, God assures Moses many times, and the narrative itself makes clear later on, that God is in control of Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's wicked heart. And so both things are clearly true. Pharaoh's heart was hard because he made it so, but also because God made it so. And the whole Exodus event has a way of revealing both truths, the sinful obstinance of man, as well as the sovereignty of God, over, even over the heart of man. In other words, what we discover is that nothing is beyond his reach. Nothing is beyond his control. He who controls the forces of nature controls the heart of man, even that of the wicked rulers of this age. Well, look at the plagues now in particular. And what do we notice? The first plague, the plague of blood. The timing of this plague is worth noticing. Not only did it occur the next day as a direct consequence and in response to Pharaoh's rejection of the sign uh, performed in his presence, but it occurred in the morning by the Nile where Pharaoh would have been performing his morning worship or his morning devotions, praying to the gods of the Nile. And so the warning offered there in the morning at the Nile was directed at the heart of his religious life. His nature worship of the life-giving powers of the Nile would be proved inferior to the Lord. The Lord, by this first plague, rendered detestable the waters that nourished the land of Egypt. The Lord thus demonstrated that he was the Lord of Egypt too, and that all its resources were under his control. And yet, again, strangely, we notice that the, uh, the magicians are able to imitate this sign as well. And there's two comments which I could make here about that. One is this. All they could do is imitate the sign to a far lesser degree. While Aaron uh, turned the whole Nile into blood, the magicians simply turned a few leftover basins of water into the same. And so at best, their power was merely that of imitation. There was nothing original in it. Second, though they possessed the power of imitation, they could not stop what Aaron had done. In other words, they did not possess the power to deliver or to overturn the act of God. And thus their impotence compared to the true God was beginning to become apparent. 
But the result of this once more, this first plague, is that Pharaoh simply rejects what God had done. And his heart was hardened by the inferior display of the magician's power, as though they were equal to God, even though it is clear uh, that they were not. Here is another lesson for us to observe about this unfolding conflict. The sinner is often like Pharaoh here. He's too easily pacified in unbelief. Even when the obvious superiority of God to his own system of thought is evident, anything will do, any proof, any argument, if only it will confirm his own unbelief. And so it was with Pharaoh. It was evident once again who was greater in the conflict, and yet he rests content under uh, the, the, uh, the power of the magician, the, the, the magicians. Now, Go to the next plague. Another clear instance, again, that God is the Lord and he is free to do what he pleases. There are frogs which are everywhere, frogs which spring again out of the Nile. The very nature they worshipped once more becomes detestable to them as it had uh, become when the Lord turned the water into blood. And here I would notice that God often, uh, he often uh, does this. He often takes what we love, what we worship, and he makes it a burden to us. Once more, this blessing, I would put in quotations, this blessing, the spot, the Nile. Becomes to them a curse. And so we discover that God is able to turn the best things into the worst things. And he does this. As he indicates here that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. That is the lesson. All his doings prove this, especially when he does this, when he makes us hate the thing we love, when he takes the best blessings and uses them to curse us, as the Lord did here again with the Nile. But here again, we notice that the magicians were able to imitate, but no more. And by no means were they able to deliver or to offer any relief. Which is evident from the fact that Pharaoh calls upon not the magicians, but Moses and Aaron to ask their God to deliver him from the frogs, which are such a nuisance. And here is another instance we might notice in the unfolding conflict of his mercy, of his slowness and judgment. For he offers relief and answers the prayer of Moses on behalf of Pharaoh. But we're all too familiar with this man, Pharaoh, to think his hard heart would do anything but go back to where it was. And so we read in verse 15, Pharaoh saw, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, things were only going as the Lord had said. There are no surprises here. But look at the last of these first three plagues, the plague of gnats. There's some debate here as to the exact nature of this pest Was it lice? Was it gnats? It doesn't really matter. What is clear is that they were some small insect of an annoying nature, swarming the land as a great nuisance to man and beast. And this time what we see is that the magicians could not imitate this act, nor would they be able to reproduce a single thing that Moses and Aaron performed uh, thereafter. What is interesting to notice Uh, This time about the magicians is they hide behind the power of God to excuse their own inability to reproduce this miracle. This is the finger of God, they say, as though that were any excuse of their own inability. (coughs) 
Here was a power which was beyond their own. They could turn water into blood by their secret arts. They could even call forth frogs from the Nile or turn their serpent or their staff into a serpent. But to call forth a creature into existence, as Aaron did here, was clearly by their own admission something only God could do. This is the finger of God. Now, you would think that would be enough to get Pharaoh's attention, but you would be wrong. His heart only grows harder still, in spite of the clear and convincing proofs that God was in the land and that God was the Lord. However, uh, just as I put it that way, we might also notice a little detail here. The name by which they refer to God. God or Elohim. This is the finger of God. Interesting. Referring to him like this is a way of referring to him generically as God, the creator. It was, in reality, a weak admission. Because as we've seen, God was here revealing himself as the Lord of the Hebrews. And he would be known as nothing less than that. It was not enough for the magicians or for Pharaoh to say, this is the finger of God. Only this is the Lord would do. But what we see in every instance in response to this reality, this great reality, is that Pharaoh did not listen. Thus says the Lord. The Lord was speaking. It was the Lord who demanded of Pharaoh that he let his people go. It was the Lord who was acting miraculously in the land. All of this was a revelation of who he was to Pharaoh. Yet he was still at most only God to him and not the Lord. And he certainly had no interest in listening to what the Lord was saying. Which is the most obvious indication of the hard heart. That when God is speaking, we have no interest in listening He rather hardens his heart in unbelief. That is what we will later see Israel doing in the wilderness as expressed in Psalm 95 and again in Hebrews chapter 3. Let me read that to you. And we devoted many sermons to this in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. What we discover about Israel is she is as she is delivered out of the land of Egypt is that she never enters into the land of promise because uh, the sad fact about her and the tragedy of Israel, as I keep referring to it, is that her heart was every bit as hard as Pharaoh's. Israel was able to witness the signs of the Lord and to hear the voice of the Lord go out. And yet she did not submit. She did not obey. She did not believe. And so you see, again, for Israel, as much as for Pharaoh, the great question has to do with the inner man. Whether in seeing his powerful works and hearing his his voice, we harden our hearts in unbelief or soften them. Again, we know what Israel did. They were no better than Pharaoh. Every time we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart, we ought to think so too did Israel, as Exodus will uh, soon indicate and reveal. And let me just notice that in passing, how often the visible church 
appears to be no different than the world in this. Outwardly, there is this distinction, but inwardly, there is the same heart-heartedness. Or hard-heartedness, however you want to put it. Though God might make a distinction outwardly between the visible church and the world, the real difference lies in the heart. But as we find the same argument in Hebrews, we ought to remember the solution we find there. It is the same exact thing you find in Exodus, only to a much greater degree and with a great deal more clarity. What is revealed to us in the New Testament is the person of Jesus Christ. And all of the New Testament is, as we've seen, a setting forth before the believer's eyes, his glory and his power to save. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is Jehovah. And he is, like Moses, the one who performs in the Gospels many mighty works. And indeed, we also know his works are far mightier than anything Moses ever did. But the really important thing that the New Testament confronts us with, as indeed uh, the Exodus event confronted both Egypt and the land of Egypt with, is the question, did you listen? When the Lord's voice went forth, did you listen? Take Take care how you hear, Jesus says in the parable of the sower. Take care that you have ears to hear when God is speaking and when his signs are plainly evident and on display. When God spoke through Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter one, verse three. And when you read those words there in the Bible, what is the state of your heart? Or put a little bit differently. As we find Jesus Christ on the cross, what is in your heart? Do you find that you're like the centurion who says, truly, this is the son of God? Or do you only find indifference and coldness? And supposing you do, what is the remedy? In other words, what is the remedy to a hard heart in the presence of the voice and the mighty acts of the Lord? Well, again, we're confronted with this truth. It's a truth we all have to reckon with. It's a truth that Pharaoh and Moses and Israel had to reckon with, just like you and I. And it is that, again, God is the Lord. Look at him in his majesty and power and realize that only he can change the hard heart. Isn't that so plain here in the Exodus? That God who controls the whole world controls the heart by the same power. The heart of Pharaoh, the heart of Moses, the heart of Israel. And so the heart of you and I. And if he doesn't soften it, well then we'll be no different than Pharaoh or the wilderness generation. We will perish in unbelief. We will hear the word of the Lord, but harden our hearts in unbelief. The truth is, once again, as I've already stated, that our hearts are so hard that he hardly needs to harden them anymore. And when he does, he's only finishing the work we've begun ourselves. But to make the hard heart soft, that is something only the Lord can do. It is as much a miracle as turning water into blood or making frogs spring forth from the Nile or anything else that he does here through uh, the many judicial signs. Let me ask you another question. How can we know that he will do it? Because he promises he will. 
As for instance, he says in Jeremiah chapter 31, as quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. In other words, they were as hard hearted as ever. But of this new covenant, the Lord says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone as fellow citizen and everyone as brother saying, know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Here is one of the chief blessings of the new covenant, beloved. It is a new heart fashioned after the law of God, carrying with it the knowledge of God as the Lord. In other words, we are fundamentally unlike Pharaoh who says, who is uh, the Lord that I should submit to him? Everyone who partakes of the blessings of the new covenant truly says he is the Lord and I will gladly submit to him with all that I am and all that I have. This was something that Israel did not find in the wilderness, the blessing of the knowledge uh, of a heart knowledge of God as the Lord. But for a few, Moses and a few others found it, but the rest did not. That generation perished in unbelief. But it is a blessing which flows freely and plentifully now that Christ has died and the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon his church. That is what Jeremiah is plainly telling us. Something better is offered to the church today than even Israel was able to experience in those days. It is the knowledge of the Lord inwardly. The blessing of a new heart. And it is a tragedy then that the visible church now should ever resemble the world as Israel did in the wilderness in her her hard heartedness. For here is a blessing that God intends for all. All will know me, he says, all will enjoy this blessing, all who dwell and reside in the church. Even the least among you, all will know me, he says. All will know in particular that I am the Lord. And so let me just ask you in closing this simple question. Do you know the Lord? Or are you still asking what Pharaoh asked in Exodus chapter 5 verse 2? Who is the Lord that I should submit to him? If you are a Christian, beloved, it is because you know the Lord. Amen. And let us stand together now and sing praise to God, hymn number 53.
receive now the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.